But we've been looking at the different minor prophets and exploring what message they have to us and what they um, really say to us today. A lot of judgment going on, a lot of hope taking place. And today we are looking at the book Micah. And of course, Micah again is a great prophet who prophesies about the coming destruction and speaks about the Assyrian army that is moving towards and the Syrian army that is coming towards the northern kingdom. At the same time, he speaks about the Babylonian army that will rise up and move against Judah and also against Assyria. So again, we have judgment and we have hope taking place. Also, of course, in that beautiful, as you look at the book, it starts off in chapter 1 and 2 with a lot of judgment. But it describes the mount of the Lord. The mount of the Lord where the glory and the thunder and the power and is all there. But instead it draws that connection to Mount Sinai. And there where God brought his covenant to the people. It's the same language. Poetic, powerful, prophetic. It's speaking to us. But here he uses the same covenantal language with the mountain of the Lord And of course, talks about this judgment. That these covenant people, these people chosen by God, these people who God has chosen to be a witness to all nations, what God is saying to them, judgment is coming to you because of your heart, because of the way that you have lived, because of the things that you've done. Of course, again, there's that future view. The view of the coming kingdom. In the middle of Micah, there is that beautiful verse that we often quote at Christmas about then one shall be born from Bethlehem and will be raised up. And, and this gives us a sense that there's a Messiah coming. So at the same time, there is the great descriptions of judgment and descriptions of, of, of what is going to take place to the nations. There's this deep sense, as ever, of redemptive hope that God loves to redeem. We must never forget that. We must never forget that God truly wants to redeem and wants to... Come to us in that redemptive power. So there's beautiful images, if you, as you read it, of, sh- of that he says, I want to be your shepherd. And I will rebuild Jerusalem. And I will bring back the remnant, talking about and, uh, the Persian Empire, when, it will, uh, when the remnant will be brought back. And we will rebuild Jerusalem. We will rebuild the temple. And then it goes even farther in its language towards the glory of the Lord, when heaven and earth will touch together on the great day when the Lord will return and the Messiah will come and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and the glory of the Lord will be present. It's terrific stuff. So if you've got five hours, we'll go verse by verse. But I'm thinking not. So I was thinking about this as we've taught a lot about it. And you can catch up online all the different books as we've worked through them this summer. And, but I want to draw your attention to Micah 6. And this is where I really want to to linger. We want to linger Micah 6 8, 
which is that famous verse that is situated right there when God turns to the nation, the covenant people, and says, this is what I want. I want you to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. This is what the Lord asks from you. I want you to be a people of justice. I want you to be a people. Stop arguing. Stop doing your religious activities. Stop working through all of these things and doing it because you feel you have to do it. I am not interested in you having to do something out of obligation. What I'm interested in is you doing something because you have a relationship with your covenant God. And when religion becomes no longer relationship, but becomes obligation. Oh, I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to give my tithe. I have to uh, share the gospel. It's such hard work. I've got to get out of bed and come to church. Ah, now I'm a convert. I got converted as a teenager. I've loved going to church all my life. You know, I love church. But today people love to get up on Sunday mornings and watch Netflix and catch up with a good brunch, you know. And all the pastors are talking about this on our little pastor talks that we have secretly about all of you. Uh, But you know, God says, I don't want you doing this. And and here in verse 6, you see in chapter uh, uh, 6 and verse 6 and this whole passage Israel's responding. They're responding, what? What have we done? What? I call this passage, theologically, the teenager response. Do you have teenagers? You say something, they go, what? Are you serious? Dad, what? I've got two twin teenagers. I get it in Dolby Stereo. Coming from every direction. I love it. But with, with what? This is it. With what shall I come before you, Lord? And bow down before and exalt God. Shall I come before you with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of olive oil? What a ridiculous statement. 10,000 rivers of olive oil. Now that's a teenager talking. Yeah. Uh, That's a teenager talking. That's a juvenile, selfish response at that minute. What? What do you really want? Oh, you want me to do a bit of gardening, do you? Oh, do you want me to plow the garden as well? Wash the car. Yes, please. Oh, do you want to do this? There's a response here. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions? Right, yes. Shall I do baby sacrifice? Not what God's into. The fruit of my body for the sins of my soul. Israel is going, you're saying all of this to us. Well, what do you really want us to do? 
Do you want us to do this? Do you want us to bring rivers of olive oil coming in, flowing in from 10,000 rivers? What do you want? There's a little bit of detachment because they are doing it because they are made to do it, not because they are the covenant people. And we've got to be careful of every one of our hearts. And the Lord looks at them and says, hey, listen, man, many of your, your versions, says, he has shown you, O mortal, which is man, who are you? You're mortal. You're moaning. 500 years of rebellion. You have been chosen through Abraham. You have been chosen through Isaac and Jacob. I did not choose you to become like the Edomites, and we talked about that with Obadiah. I did not choose you to be a different nation. I chose you to be a blessed nation, a good nation, of promise, of hope that you will bless the world. And what you do, you've turned my glorious covenant into a sense of hard work. You turned it, and so what does the Lord require of you? This is what I require of you, the Lord says. It's really simple. I want you to act justly. What does this mean? Well, it means in the covenant community of the nation of Israel, I want you to show respect to each other and to treat each other correctly, to do things the right way. According to Exodus 20 through to 23, I want your social engagement to care for people and to love people in the right respecting way. You are not respecting people. Priests, Prophets even are taking money to prophesy. The priests and the leaders are rubbing land, which is illegal. You are not doing any of this. And what does it really boil down to? I want you to care for the poor. I want you to care for the foreigner. I want you to be willing to address slavery and to treat people correctly with respect. I want you to care for the widow and to care for the orphan. In fact, every person in society where they are weaker, where they are struggling, where you can take advantage of them by your power and your position, you bulldoze down their houses. You rob them of the land. You do all of this to the weak and the poor and you are not acting like my covenant people. That's the message. You want to know what act justly means? It means respect and do what I'm asking you to do. And we all have a job to ask to act justly. I remember there was a, I took a youth group into the center of the city of Birmingham. And as we all went, uh, we were waiting for the bus. I was a youth worker. A young lady turned up uh, in her very nice car, which her parents had bought her. I think it was a BMW. We were going down into the city center to give out soup and food to the poor, to the homeless and to serve. 
She gets out the, uh, the car and she's not prepared for going down onto the streets of the city of Birmingham, the second city in the United Kingdom. So she gets out the car and she's wearing her high heels, which is not good. I'm not against high heels, by the way. But she was clipping, 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 clipping along in a little pencil skirt and in a probably, you know, scantily dressed. God bless her. And so she was walking towards us, but we're glad she was there. Hey, come on, jump on, off downtown. There we are. Going out, 2 a.m. in the morning, clip-clopping, avoiding the drunks, getting to people, giving them soup, praying blessing, engaging, serving with the Salvation Army, and showing the love of God. It was really good for the youth group. So she leaves with a bowl of soup, and she's walking along, clip, 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 clip. And she goes up to a gentleman who is sat on the floor with a large blanket over him. And she says, sir, here is a bowl of soup. He goes, oh, what? She jumps back. Sir, a bowl of soup. And then he says, why are you doing this? She thought for a moment. And she said, I don't know why I'm doing this. (laughs) But this is the most important thing I have ever done in my life. Now, take the soup. (laughs) Clip, 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 clip. I think we have to work out in God's economy what is the most important thing we should do. When we act justly, it means treating people with respect. And that's what God is asking of the nation and that they would live this way. Love mercy. Isn't love mercy just another expression of this? A kind of metaphor and a deeper step farther. What is the difference between acting justly and love mercy? Well, there's a jump between the two. Is that what the Lord is after is not that you just do the right thing. He wants you to love mercy. He wants you to have deep love. He wants you, when you engage with people, to not just do it out of religious obligation, but do it because you feel it. Because you You see somebody that is weaker and struggling and you want to help lift them up and you do it out of a deep sense of three things. This is what this word mercy means. Three things. To be merciful in this context means that you give out of generosity of your heart. You give out of grace of who you are. You give out of a sense of loyalty to the covenant to love people, to love God, to do it from your heart, to do it out of a deep love towards the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means. It's not like you're being a do-gooder and I'm I'm helping here. My grandmother, she died, I guess, uh, when I was about 17. She had the ability with my mother to turn up as if she was the one saving and helping the day, you know, sorting everything out, doing everything. 
but at the same time making it very clear that she was helping, but really she knew best and she would be quite condescending and they'd end up after a day or two having a big argument. Because she came to show mercy, she came to act right, but she couldn't help herself but do it in a spirit of criticism, a spirit of, of sort of disapproving, a spirit that her way of doing things was certainly the best way. Have you ever met a relative like that? Are you that person? No, not this church. Not this church. I tell you what, there's a danger that the spirit of which we serve others, God is saying, don't just do the right thing and act justly because it's the right thing with the wrong attitude. Your attitude is linked to loving God and loving your neighbor. So some things you do are the most important thing you've ever done in your life and they are the simplest thing. Now, I could preach, of course, at this point easily about welcoming the foreigner. And that is a part of our Christian Judaism approach that those are the lost, those are the foreigners, those are the struggling. People said to Michelle, when you worked amongst Sudanese refugees in northern France with our pursuit school, and they were there playing cards and you were feeding them and you're getting to know them and they're then going off and trying to catch a ferry to get to the United Kingdom. They were breaking their arms and legs. There wasn't support. Why do you do this when they are completely alienated. They're not even, can't even access medical care within the French system. They can't even find any, any peace or any welcome. Why do you do this? Well, it's because it's the very nature of Christianity. The very nature of Christianity is that I was once a foreigner to the kingdom of God and I was once a refugee. I was once a wanderer. But one day, Jesus Christ came into my life and changed my life. I was once the man on the road that was beaten up and left bleeding. But then a good Samaritan, a foreigner came and took me to a house and there to a hostel. And there gave me oil and healed me and made a difference. And I was once beaten up in life, but the Lord picked me up and he brought me to the family of God and the glory of the bride of Christ. And he healed my life. I was once poor. Poor in spirit, poor in life. But somebody came and gave me the water of life. But it's also practical, of course. I've agonized over this verse. I've prayed it through and thought, what is our response? Because it's not easy engaging. And yes, we care for the orphans. Over 200 of them with child of mine. As a church alone, we look after orphans in northern India with a uh, uh, couple of other churches from our own conference. That's good. We engage in, in, in different acts of social action. But what is it in society at the moment that it is our biggest challenge? 
Where can the church in Canadian Western society make the biggest difference? How can we act justly? How can we love mercy? How can we do this? Can I tell you something that is an epidemic in the Western world of which the church can make the biggest difference? There's an epidemic that is affecting the world and it's an epidemic of loneliness. Our culture is creating an epidemic of loneliness. Don't roll your eyes at the idea of loneliness. Research has shown and current research has shown that loneliness affects our health. It drives our blood pressure up. It affects our cardio. That if you suffer with pain and you're not part of a community, literally they have proved that if you travel through that pain in your body alone, it is more painful to do that on every level than it is to have those around us that we connect with, that we talk to, that actually community and togetherness deals with pain physically within our lives. You are healthier when you are not lonely and you have community. Maybe that's one reason why Christians live longer who come to church and don't watch Netflix all the time. Uh, But maybe that's one reason. It's actually scientifically shown that we know the terrible images of Romania, of babies that were never hugged or loved or thrown in the air and cared for and kissed and the trauma and the pain that they went through of being orphaned without any touch. But even in adult life and as we move forward into our uh, uh, years of maturity, We need to be together. We need to connect. That loneliness is one of the greatest injustice that is affecting our Western society at this moment within within our lives. And it's very challenging even to me to say, well, how are we meeting the epidemic of loneliness? That what happens is even it has been proved in research that people who live lonely lives die earlier, a lot earlier in fact, than people that live rich community relationship lives. And that this epidemic that grabs hold of us is affecting our social policy, even For example, the British government appointed a minister responsible for loneliness. And new research has shown that we may worry about obesity, but they say that loneliness kills more people than obesity ever does. Got all the research. What is the response as the church as this? Because we are built out of community. We are built out of love. We need to love and to welcome. And we need to face the epidemic of loneliness with the glory of the Christian community that is a place of safety, that is a place of non-judgment, that is a place of listening because God loves people, but the enemy wants to isolate them and to stop them enjoying the joy of that relationship. So it's a challenge. Mother Teresa so beautifully said that there are things 
that you do that I can never do. And there are things that I do that you can never do. But together, we can do great things. We mustn't lose community. We mustn't lose togetherness. We mustn't lose that sense. We mustn't allow the enemy to isolate people, not in the covenant people and not beyond the covenant people, that we become that place of a welcoming place. Otherwise, people fall into this kind of fantasy world, online world, and all the dangers with this. And we, if we're going to act justly and love mercy, we need to create space for communities. We need to encourage those opportunities to gather more and more together. That, that, that having coffee with people you normally wouldn't have with. And engaging with people that struggle and that live a lonely, isolated life is an act of justice and mercy within our communities. It makes that difference to sit across the table and to listen to them. To not judge To create what they call these days friendship seats. Where you sit with another and you show friendship. The truth is, a lot of us suffer with loneliness. A lot of men suffer with loneliness when they get to their 50s for some reason. It's part of that shift in life. And yet, because we've all been working so hard and suddenly at 50 something clicks. And loneliness comes in. Even a sense of loneliness for no apparent reason. Within marriage, there's a loneliness epidemic. What the Lord wants to do, the Lord wants to build his church to be a place where we act right, where we love deeply. So how do we do this? Because let's be honest, (laughs) you know, working with people, that are isolated and working with people that struggle is not always easy, is it? I mean, you may find it easy. I don't. Because they they're miserable for a reason. True. The things in their life. And you think, oh, there's a beautiful end to this verse. So we do the what is right. We do it out of deep love that is at the very spirit of who we are. But we walk humbly. God loves it when we walk humbly. What does it mean to walk humbly? Well, we don't walk arrogantly. We don't walk in a way that we know the answer all the time. We don't walk in a way that we are proud, know-it-alls, always got the answer. This is a danger that there is this idea that goes on, that we always know. To walk humbly in the Hebrew literally means that when you are with somebody, you are attentive to them. It's about... Stopping your own mind talk, settling down and being absolutely attentive to somebody. Have you ever had the conversation with that person when they're looking over your shoulder? Or when something you're, you're talking and you know that they're, they're kind of watching 
you know, the hockey on the, uh, on the TV screen behind. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, it must have been tough for you. The Canucks are doing rather well. Hallelujah. Yes, brother. And it's about attentiveness. The Hebrew word is about being careful with the way that you treat people, the way that you are, that there's a careful, caring approach to the way that you treat others. It is that prudence. We don't hear that word a lot, prudence. But there's a prudence to our response as we listen to people, as we love people, as we engage with people. This is not rocket science. It can be done over a table with food and inviting people to your house. It can be done through the beautiful space of a coffee shop as you sit with people face to face and talk. And it's been shown that the very act of having a face to face conversation in the way humans are designed can be a healing power within lives. It can be that your front door is the beginning of your mission field, that a conversation in a grocery store, a conversation in um, in the mall, a conversation where you allow it to flow and develop can make a lot of difference to people's lives. That's why we encourage small groups. That's why we encourage engagement. That's why we want to keep growing small groups and places where people can engage. Specialist groups like divorce care, grief care. Now we're caring for children who have been through loss through the Rainbows program. That's why we run clubs. That's why we encourage our baby and toddlers groups in, on Thursday morning that is growing like crazy with the community because moms with small children are alone. And we, the church, have a role to play in that. We have a role with our own congregation to visit, to connect, to notice when somebody disappears or somebody isn't around. It's hard. The pastors, we try, but it's hard. And so what do we do? We walk humbly with your God. The only way you can interact with the community effectively is to reflect God's character. And the end of Micah reflects God's character. Who is God like you? Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not say, stay angry forever, but delight in show mercy. You know what the key word here is? Forgiveness. When we engage with broken, hurting people in our world, we have to get our forgiveness on. Forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is a mindset. You know, you can be angry and resentful and surf that negative thought all the way onto the beach, or you can choose to forgive you and I can choose to love. You and I can choose to reach out. I guess I should have called this all the lonely people. 
Now, of course, you don't know who sang that, I'm sure. The Beatles. They're possibly the greatest rock band, pop band of all time. But captured the heart of something, apart from Abba. Uh, But captured the heart of something, all the lonely people. And the Lord says, what difference can you make? All I ask at the end of this, when you think about acting justly, is I remember I spoke, he's now an Anglican priest. He's a lovely guy. He was one of the pastor that took over from my a church in England. And he served and then he went on to take his orders and became an Anglican priest. And he said something that really bemused me in his interview for years. And I asked him a question when we were in the panel. I said, so what about friendship? How are you doing with friendship? And he goes, hmm. He had a little goatee. He goes, oh, friendship. He said, I'm not sure I understand that completely. So, well, do you have friends and groups and do you have healthy friendships? He said, well, yes. But I live by a slightly different philosophy. That as I travel through life, everybody I meet is my friend. Isn't that beautiful? That we start to treat even the stranger, the foreigner, the poor. Those who are enslaved. Those who are the widowed. Those who are the orphans. But whoever, we treat them like they're our friends. It's a heart of friendship, isn't it? That makes the difference in our lives. Let's pause to reflect. You may feel lonely and not have that community. And I want you to connect with Pastor Steve, with the team. And this autumn, get into community. Get into a group. Form a group. I ask you this question. Who are you available if God brings a lonely person through on your path this week? Are you available to be used by the Lord in their life? Maybe there's somebody in your life at the moment who is feeling very alone. And the Lord may speak to you about them. And so ask the Lord the question. Lord, is there somebody you want me to show an attentive, caring heart to this week? Who is that person? I'm available, Lord. I am available. I want to fix my eyes on you. I am available, Lord. Maybe you're that lonely person, that lonely individual. 
it's time for you to step out of the front door and to initiate, start to talk about this, start to connect, start to change your world and start to make a difference with the love of Jesus at the heart. Heavenly Father, as we come to the close of this service, I pray that we may be bold and that we may live out this verse. Thank you for the many ways we can <coughs> through volunteering. Thank you for the volunteers at the MCC. Thank you for the volunteers at the Gospel Mission. Thank you for the volunteers at Metro. Thank you for the volunteers at so many other places and the difference the church makes in this world. Help us, Lord, to fight and to grapple with the epidemic of loneliness in our society, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.